Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brian Jura, and tonight uh, I've got a very special guest. I'm joined by the uh, hardest working man in sports, that's ESPN Radio's Kevin Winter. Kevin, thanks for joining us tonight. What's up, bud? Long time. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, you know, I, w- I wish that the uh, Mets were uh, in the playoffs, but we can't have everything. But there has been <laughs> some uh, news here in uh, in Mets land, actually a lot of news, but probably the most important thing is they finally decided to move on from Terry Collins. And there's no shortages of names being tossed uh, around to replace him. And I want to know, do you have a favorite candidate to take over for Collins as the the Mets' new manager? You know, it's, it's kind of funny when you uh, – I was thinking about that earlier because I obviously know how much of a diehard Mets fan you are. Um, so I, I started doing a little looking. And, you know, considering how long Collins has been reportedly on the hatching block or the hatchet block, um, the, the list of names and the length and the number of them is remarkable. The one that I did not see that I think I would make a run at, Alex Cora, uh, bench, bench coach now with the Astros, he uh, was uh, used to be with us at ESPN. I think he is going to be a very good manager someday, somewhere. And this would be a perfect opportunity for the Mets. You got a young team. You're pretty much in a rebuilding mold. Put him in there. Let's give him some time and give him a shot. I think that would be a wonderful hire. And I think Alex would would uh, would relish and, and, and flourish working uh, working in New York City and in Queens. There's been about 20 names that I've heard of being connected to the job, and Cora actually has gotten some traction. And I'm I'm not sure why it is, but it seems like everybody who's been connected to the job has some connection to the Mets previously. And and Cora didn't have a very uh, distinguished MLB career, but he played for the Mets for, I don't know, uh, a year or so. So there there is a previous Mets connection with Cora. And, you know, it would be nice after having one of the oldest managers in the game in Collins who was pushing 70 to have somebody who is in his early 40s like Cora. So I'm certainly behind that pick if if that's who they end up choosing. I I mean – you got you, you would think, right? You would think you go uh, young blood, um, you know, and, and I think this is a perfect opportunity. I know Alex doesn't really have a lot of managerial experience. And I, in fact, I don't think he has any, um, but he was, I remember his time in Boston, one of the smartest baseball guys in terms of in-game managing. Um, just the way he would even talk about just answering questions post-game. You could see he would think like a manager and, you know, he was the same way as an analyst. And you're not, you know, just because you're a good analyst doesn't mean you've got to be a good baseball manager. I'm not kind of going that route. But why not take a shot? You know, you've tried a lot of different things. Take, it, take a different route because if it works, you've got a gem and you've got a gold mine. And if it flourishes, it's not like it's a stepping stone for another job. You know, this is, this is New York. This is the Mets. 
if you succeed, you you know, you've you've got something there. And you can you know, you can make it last for a very long time. It's remarkable to me as as someone who's never really been a, a big Terry Collins supporter, how much um support he did receive from uh the the fan base in general i mean he was he had a sub 500 record and he was here seven years and there's still a considerable number of people who wanted him to go on uh and you know they always talk about well you can't rebuild in new york and it's like well this is a guy who spent most of seven years proving that wrong so you know i i think that the fact that he doesn't have a ton of managerial experience shouldn't necessarily be held against him but uh, uh, that, anyway, that's a, while that's a that's a great point. While while we're uh, talking about the the Mets here, and that's our primary focus. I mean, we are in in the start of uh, the the playoffs and the the NL wild card game going on tonight. And here we are, a couple of minutes after eleven, and uh, we're only in the seventh inning of uh, the game. And uh, currently, the Rockies, actually the Diamondbacks, hold an eight to five lead. And then last night, it seemed like the the game went on forever. Uh, I think it was uh, over three hours and 50 minutes was last night's Yankees-Indians game, and and this one will probably go longer than that. And, um, you know, the regular season games are too long and the playoff games are even longer. Uh, Is is there anything that we can do about that, or is that just the way it is from from now on? I I think there is something that you can do um, from a tactical standpoint in-game, you can eliminate the number of visits to the mounds. Uh, I was in studio last night working the AL wildcard game between the Yanks and the Twins. The ones, you know, and you referenced, obviously, how long it took. It eventually picked up the, the pace or, the, you know, the clock started moving faster. It was uh, 45 minutes to play that first inning. It, that had nothing to do with pace. That wasn't like a Red Sox-Yankee pace where it's 0-0 after one inning in 45 minutes. Last night had to do with performance. And I think that is a large issue, Um, whether it's a strike zone being smaller, pitchers are not ready to pitch, you know, like you and I remember back in the day, whatever it may be, it's performance-based. And in today's day and age of fantasy sports, whether it's baseball or football, everyone wants offense, but you want it fast. Well, you, you can't have it both ways. If you get a lot of offense, that means games take a, lo- a while. So what do, you, what do you really want? You know, this is like we want our cake and we want to eat it too. Um, last night was performance. You know, the first inning, the first three innings were brutal because the pitchers, they rolled out there, they didn't perform. Tonight's game is actually, you know, I've seen more mound visits. Um, tonight is a pace issue. If you eliminate the number of mound visits, and I'm talking like with the catcher, I mean, how many times, Brad, do we see, conferences on the mound um even whether it's to stall and get someone ready in the bullpen whatever it may be if you get rid of those um or limit them i think that's a shot other than that whether you want to widen the strike zone your guess is as good as mine buddy and you may have some better ideas uh because we want offense and offense takes time yeah, that's an interesting point. I don't know if it's necessarily we want offense and we have to sacrifice offense, but dear God, uh, four-hour four games are, are, are too much for me, and, and I, I think that that goes for everyone. And you know, especially now that we have this 
this universe that's used to getting everything and you know, you, we just don't have the patience to sit for a four-hour game. And, and even when you're multitasking and doing two or three other things, four hours is just a tough barrier to, to, to take. I mean, and, unless it's your team that's involved and you've got a, a, a real specific rooting interest, I mean, it, it just seems like it's a, a difficult thing to, to keep the, the normal, regular baseball fan who doesn't have his team or her team in the playoffs uh, involved and engaged. And th- that's a, that's a tough thing. I think. I, I think you're right. I would kind of throw it out and argue a little, a little bit in this regard. If you have a lengthy game in the playoffs, as long as it's entertaining, you're going to win and you're going to get the fan base. Now where I will agree uh, and even a diehard fan, whether it's a diehard Red Sox fan, diehard Met fan, whatever it may be, in the middle of the summer, uh, on a June Saturday night or Saturday afternoon, the last thing in the world we want to be doing is spending four hour, you know, three and a half, four hours invested watching a game when you could be doing something else. That's where you really lose people in the middle of the year. I think if you, uh, you know, when you run them into the postseason and you only get them on a couple of occasions, you can survive, and, and they actually turn into some of the most exhilarating and memorable games. Regular season, when they take that long, no, that's too much. I mean, you can't have games averaging, you know, three and a half, three fifteen uh, over a course of one sixty-two. That's yeah, that's just not good. You're going to lose fans, especially the younger ones. Uh, uh, we're on agreement on that, so let's move on. I want to talk about uh, since since you do have the the radio background, um, what are some of the pros of cons of doing radio coverage of of baseball compared to other sports? Um. Well, obviously the con is the is the time because you know, you know if I've got an NBA game, I know that uh, the NBA game lasts two and a half hours. NFL game lasts about three and a half hours, give or take on either sides. You know, college football a little longer. Baseball, you never know. There is sometimes in the in the middle of the summer, uh, we get a nice National League, uh, Madison Bumgarner, Clayton Kershaw, one nothing. We're out of there in two and a half hours. Game set match. It's a wonderful thing, uh, and we can enjoy the night. Sometimes you get extra inning games, but aside from that, I like it. You know, that's and it, you know that's kind of nitpicking. But what I like, it's nostalgic because there is still something about baseball. Driving around, whether it's on a uh, in the middle of the summer, maybe you got to go somewhere in the postseason. You always seem to look for a baseball game. I think before you look for any other sport on the radio, uh, and I'm. If, I'll say I'm, but meaning we who do it, we're always there. You can always find us. You know, football carve out a Saturday or a Sunday for their favorite team because you've only got uh, 10 to 16, whatever it may be, college or pro. You, that's your investment. Baseball, it, it's ongoing. It's the entire course of the spring, the summer, into the fall. You're going to be doing other stuff. You're going to be driving home on a family road trip, and maybe I'm the one telling you exactly uh, what happened to your favorite team. To me, that's cool. Um, and you also paint a better picture. I would leave games. I would leave work, whether I was just doing updates or doing games, and I would put on the you know, satellite radio and hoping to catch the Dodgers' first three innings the last couple of years so I could listen to the Vin Scully simulcast. You know, things like that. Some of the most historic broadcasters in sports are baseball radio announcers. That's you know that's that, that's nostalgic to me, and I think baseball still has a bit of the nostalgic uh, aspect to it. Now, 
I guess I was spoiled because growing up I had um, the the classic three Mets announcers, uh, Lindsey Nelson and Ralph Kiner and Bob Murphy, who all gave something on the radio. It wasn't just a great baseball radio experience. I had a great uh, basketball and hockey radio experience because we had Marv Albert doing the, the radio games when I was a kid. And so many people were talking about, or uh, back in, in, in the day, well, we have trouble following the puck. And, and it's like, I don't know. I never have any trouble following the puck. And, and if I do, <laughs> Marv, is, uh, you know, Marv is on the radio making it easier for me than you, Yahoo, can't even follow it on TV. But it, it does seem that more people are, are either drawn to or so, somehow baseball gets better play-by-play announcers for the radio and, and that Marv Albert was much, much more the uh, exception rather than the rule for the other sports like basketball and, and hockey. That's a fair point. Um, and I think one of the things with baseball is it is a, if you are listening or if you're doing it, and it's when people ask me about my favorite sport, I think my, my favorite in this regard is football. Football is play five or six seconds set it up let the color guy go set it back up play five or six seconds baseball is a lengthy conversation especially on radio with a game mixed in and in baseball i think more so than any other sport you can actually hear when something is happening whether it's the crack of the bat whether it's the crowd in the background as the announcers are almost trying to play catch up um, whether it's the inflection of the announcers. You could be doing something in your yard, sitting amongst friends. Brian, how many times back in the day when we used to work on the Fish Pier in Boston at the old house sports data before the televisions got installed, we would listen to games, and there would be kind of background noise, but all of a sudden when the announcer kind of ups his voice a little bit, maybe you stop typing, maybe you stop writing, and you kind of focus on what's going on. That's the beauty of baseball on radio. And I think it still exists. Uh, the other thing, by the way, selfishly, for us at ESPN Radio, we have every game of the postseason. Uh, the, after the wild card game last night, there's no other games on ESPN. Uh, so if, if, you know, when, when you see some of the highlights, if SportsCenter wants to run any of the highlights or whatever, they may run a highlight, and then they're using us on radio because we are the Disney entity that is covering the, uh, the postseason. So that's selfish, but that's that's still you know, hey, that's a perk of the job. You get to be a little selfish like that. Oh, absolutely. Now you you referenced the time that we we spent listening to games on the radio, and I'd like to talk about um, the guy who turns out is still the Red Sox um, radio guy, and that's Joe Castiglione. And I don't think anyone would ever question his knowledge of both the game and of Red Sox history. But if we're being honest, and, and Joe, I think, would agree with this himself, he doesn't have the greatest voice. And I want to know, can, as a broadcaster, can you ever overcome that? What's your description like? Here's where you can overcome it. You can overcome it on a local level. Do you connect with the fan base? Uh, maybe, you know, in I don't, I don't want to go all the way back to a guy like Johnny Most, who probably would never get a job anywhere but Boston back in the day, the old Celtic <laughs> broadcaster. But you kind of know where I'm going, right? Can you, oh, connect yeah. with the, can you connect with the locals? On the national level, for the most part, they kind of want the, 
uh, old-time radio voice or the old-time broadcaster voice, and you lose your dialect, lose any accent that you had. But locally, if you've got an accent, of course you can overcome it. Are you a good uh, storyteller? Can you give description? Um, how, How much passion do you show or do you exhibit, whether it's radio or television for that matter? I think that, you know, in that regard, as long as you make a connection to your fan base and to those who are listening and watching, you can absolutely overcome uh, a voice. You know, there are times I don't necessarily have uh, the deepest of, of radio voices. I thought I, could, you know, I thought I did, and then you, you meet other people, and you go, whoa, wait a minute, where did that come from? But if, you've, but if you've got the passion for it, you know, that relates, and people pick up on it, and, and people kind of understand it. There are still some fan bases. How many times also do you see this, when, a, especially in the postseason, when national announcers take over and all the local fan bases all go to social media, blank and blank announcer hates our team. I can't stand to be, you know, Joe Buck's Twitter handle. Just remember, I hate your team. That's what he has under his Twitter bio. <laughs> but it's, it's something you deal with. It's something you understand and accept. Um, but I think the biggest thing, connect, to paint the picture, tell the story, and, and, show, and do it with passion. If you're boring, you're, you're, you're in deep trouble. Before we leave this topic, I just want to throw one thing out there. And, you know, when the Mets made the uh, World Series in, in 2015, you know, we were exposed to Joe Buck. And, and you know, I, I think Mets fans are very uh, defensive of their broadcasters, loving both the uh, TV and the radio guys. And for us, it really was a step down going to Joe Buck, who has absolutely has a wonderful voice. But to me, the the issue is that, and I don't think this is limited to uh, the, the Mets. I think this is every team. Since you can't possibly follow a team, every team in baseball over 162 games, you don't know the, the storylines that have necessarily developed over the year. And you just latch on to one or two things, got beaten to death, regardless if they were true or not. And with Joe Buck, I always think about the relentless Royals and the whole the whole narrative of the series drawn by him was the relentless Royals. And it made no difference that the, the Mets pitchers were, were lousy and that their hitters were even worse during the series. If the Mets had performed up to anything close to what they had done previously in the playoffs, they would have swept that series. But because they just picked that time to go cold or the Royals pitching was 10 times better than we thought it was, you know, you can argue either way, but the only thing that mattered to them was the relentless Royals. And that was annoying. And that's why I think in 2015, people thought, Oh, Joe Buck hates the Mets. Well, and I understand that because two things, number one, remember, Kansas City was also coming off a World Series a year ago, which they kind of exhibited and displayed the same characteristics. Uh, so that was an easy con- you know, continuation and continuing story. To your point about latching on to one or two storylines, uh, I'll take you inside broadcasting a little bit. Whether, and I don't necessarily know about series, but if you're just showing up to do a game, you will go in, you'll get about 10, 15 minutes with the manager, coach, one or two players, and you have to take whatever they tell you in that time frame and turn it into the story for your broadcast. 
and it may be something that you've read, you've picked up on as you're, you know, you're flying out to the game and trying to figure it out, and the locals have already heard it. It may have been a couple of weeks old, and yet it's the, nation, you know, it's the national story that they want to tell to the national public. And that, I understand, is where locals who watch their game and who have national broadcasters, I understand that's where they get frustrated. Oh, uh, watching the game here. Um, so I understand on that point. For series, that I, I would like to believe at least my what I would do I would you know, want to try to expand and move things forward, whether it's storylines, um, per- person of interest, whatever it may be. I always want to try to spin things forward and take it and move it along. Don't go back. And I think one thing that happens because we get so caught up in the social media world where a story is out there, it becomes the national story. And then when you actually do a national game, you have to then retell it. Maybe it's the first time you're doing that team since the story two or three weeks ago. So all you're doing is retelling it again and again. I get the frustration. The other point, very quickly, the other point I get uh, that I hear is when the game is on the road, uh, your your, your local team's playing on the road with national broadcasters, home team does something well. And their inflection, everything gets goes up, and that's when I hear, oh, they hate the, you know, they want Team X to win instead of our team. I constantly tell people, we're human too. We get caught up in the game, thirty, forty thousand, whatever it may be, who are screaming their heads off, and you, there's no way you can be stoic while listening to those people scream as your background noise, and you're trying to describe what's happening. Yeah, it's. It's impossible. Now, I I haven't done any uh, radio work, but I've I've done print work, and uh, on a, on a much lower level for the most part than than what you've done. But I would be uh, I would hear the same things. It's like you know, look, I, I don't care who wins. I want the story, <laughs> and where, wherever a, the story you good, is, that's, you want a good yeah. game and a good story. Exactly. You you go where the story takes you, and I, I think that you know my criticism. What I mentioned earlier of the 2015, they weren't following the story. They had the narrative, and by God, they were going to make that narrative fit regardless of what the story actually was. And and that is extremely frustrating from, from people who are used to seeing the story develop instead of having the story shoved down our throat. But anyway, let's move on. Um, I know you have a little uh, sideline reporting background in, in your history, and I want to talk about a yep. guy that the Mets have, and they have a guy named Steve Gelbs, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or not. And, and Steve Gelbs, he, he certainly seems like a nice guy, you know, maybe a little bit on the dweeby side, but, but a nice guy. <laughs> but it's always frustrating when he comes on the air because they're presenting pieces that easily could have been in the pregame show, and they're interrupting live action to bring his his reports, and and it's it's incredibly frustrating as a viewer. And I want to know how are sideline viewers um, or sideline reporters viewed, you know, just in the industry? Are they generally liked, or you know, is is it more yeah we tolerate them when it's good because it creates a whole lot more jobs? I mean, what, what's the well, what's the viewpoint on sideline reporters? 
they are they are liked, they are respected, and here's why. And I understand the point uh, that you make because it happens. You know, I think it happens, especially in baseball, for a lot of local teams. You are sideline reporters kind of get tasked with uh, maybe doing the pro, uh, an extra promotion. Um, you know, Red Sox have a ton of those things, and that's you know you, you don't want your play-by-play guy and your color guy doing all of them. So sometimes you have the sideline reporter doing it. The sideline reporter. Uh, the other thing, very quickly to your point of interrupting the game. In this day and age, people and television producers view it as you're, it, you're watching it anyway, so you don't need to be describing every single little detail. And if someone is telling a story let it go as, as long as nothing major happens. Sideline reporters are trained. If something big happens, lay out, let the play-by-play person jump back in. But if, you know, in, in the, if, if a story is happening or that's kind of their job as the sideline reporter, ESPN, we've, we've kind of taken it for college football and we've made a field analyst. What are you seeing down on the field? So that's kind of changed a little bit, but the other, the, for the most part, you're taking those moments that I mentioned where you're meeting, uh, you know, whether it's coach, player, you want to take the stories that aren't going to make the play-by-play broadcast, and you want to bring them to the listener or the viewer. And, and so that's what the sideline reporter's role is on top of obviously keeping an eye on anything happening. In baseball, you don't get as much um, – you know, you're, it's not like football. Football, you can always see sideline interaction. Baseball, you're not going to see that over the course of 162. It's you know laid back. It's all this other stuff. Uh, also, sideline reporters are there for interviews because it's an easy access. But they're you know they're viewed very very highly. On for the new age of broadcasters, um, the former Patriot broadcaster on radio, Gil Santos, the legend in Boston, they were thinking about bringing a sideline reporter on for a Patriots uh, for the Patriots radio broadcast. And his response was, why? Bill Belichick doesn't give you anything anyway, and, and it's my show. Well, that was the end of that. So sometimes the old school guys still want the, uh, still want the game to be theirs. Um, but in this day and age, they're almost kind of being woven into now as field analysts. Uh, what are you seeing down on the field? Uh, how does it translate and all that stuff? My, my favorite uh, moment uh, involving a sideline reporter was way back in the 90s. The Knicks and the Pacers were in a, in a playoff series. And for whatever reason, they were alternating who was interviewing the coaches uh, uh, you know, at, at the halftime break. And whenever Ahmad Rashad was doing the interviewing, the Pacers won. And whenever, I think it was Hannah Storm, was doing the game, the Knicks won. And so the game went to, to seven games. And at halftime, there was Hannah Storm interviewing Larry Brown for the Pacers coach. And, and Larry said, where's Ahmad? <laughs> and, you know, it, was, it was like a perfectly honest moment. And, and you know, it was, you, it's so rare to get one of those. And, and the other case, I guess, that we can bring up uh, from the NBA is uh, Greg Popovich, who, who, you know, doesn't really hide his contempt with the, the whole dog and pony show in, involved with the things. Have you ever had uh, any high-profile uh, interactions like that? No. Um, the, the only interactions that I've been able to get so far in, in my job is, and I've been lucky enough where I've kind of gotten uh, bumped up to the number one studio role for the NBA as you know, the guy in front of me, Mark Kestisher, is now the voice of the NBA. 
so when we travel for the finals or we travel for All-Star Weekend, we get those minutes with players and coaches. It's a couple of minutes on tape, and then it's just kind of like a, a, a sit back and, and shoot the breeze session. Well, by, I've never gotten pop, but I've heard the stories. When the microphone and the recorder is rolling, pop is very calculated, let's say. As soon as it goes off, he is one of the most engaging personalities that the NBA has. And that also takes you behind the scenes sometimes as what a coach is willing to let out and what a coach is willing or wants to keep in house. Um, that's, that's the fun part. What my favorite is my perception over the last two years between one game two years ago and this past year for five, my perception of Kyrie Irving um, going in a little bit of a punk, you know, little bit of a, the me, 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 I want to show everybody. When you talk with him and you listen to him describe what Golden State was doing and him then trying to describe to us how he's trying to counteract it, the intelligence and the basketball IQ, the respect I had for him was went through the roof. And that's where you learn a little bit more about the guy or about the player or the coach and then sometimes you can actually take that into the broadcast. You don't want to ruin all the secrets because, you know, they do it for a reason. But if you can take a little bit and peel back that curtain, it may, it, whether it humanizes it or not, it also goes to show sometimes, look, they're not complete you-know-what holes. They, they're doing this because this is what – they're really focused on what is happening with their team. They don't want to you – know, they don't like doing the in-game stuff. Some of them don't mind. Others are, you're taking away my time, and I could be using it to diagram a play. Well, I can't believe that our 30 minutes is, is already up, but uh, that is the case. And I'd like to, to thank my, my guest tonight, uh, ESPN Radio's Kevin Winter. Kevin, it was uh, a fun half hour, and, and I really hope that uh, you'll consider if they ever give you a day off again, uh, joining us again and, and being back on here where we can talk a little bit more Mets. Well, get get good, and then we can actually put you on television too. <laughs> oh, ouch! Oh, oh man! That's cold. All right. On, well, on that, note, <laughs> on that cheery note, on that cheery note, I buddy. think we will call it. A, yeah, it was good talking to you. And uh, please uh, tune in again uh, next week when we have uh, uh, another special guest, and that's MLB historian John Thorne. So that'll be eleven o'clock uh, p.m. Uh, Wednesday night. Uh, Good night, everybody, and goodbye.